You are listening to That'll Preach. This is a weekly segment on the Four Oaks Midtown podcast. And uh, today we have a special episode uh, we're going to record based on current events. And uh, right here I have with me Lance Olam, senior pastor at Four Oaks Midtown. Senior. Uh, senior I, I pastor. I, I pastor at Greater pastor. And then we have uh, Zach Simons, who's a worship pastor, associate pastor. Junior pastor. Junior pastor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm Brian Zhang. I'm I am junior, I'm, junior. I'm lackey. You're Pee Wee. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. I'm JV Squad. But uh, we want to have a, a conversation about current events, especially reflecting on race. Uh, obviously, this comes on the heels of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of a police officer. Also, there has been uh, a lot of chatter about. Uh, other issues surrounding this, um, issues about systemic racism, issues about uh, race in general in America, tensions in America, all these issues are being brought to the forefront. Uh, and obviously it's manifesting in protests, a lot of calls for political action. And this is really stirring up a lot of conversation in the church. And so there's a need for the church to reflect on these issues and to think through how does the church respond first within its members, among ourselves. How do we talk about this? How do we listen? How do we think through this in a Christian way? But also what is the church's response in the public sphere? How do we understand uh, how these, how, how, how the gospel informs our witness to the world? And uh, I hope that our, our approach to this and our goal is very modest in this conversation. We're not gonna be able to speak as experts on a lot of these issues. And we don't have all the time in the world to go into everything. But my modest goal would probably be that we could just start the conversation, maybe model what self-reflection looks like and not pass too quickly over these events, but take a moment to really let them sink in and cause not only self-reflection, but reflection on the church as a whole on how we think about issues of race. So uh, I want to start off with just a very basic question. Uh, for you personally, Lance Zach, how is how have current events? Uh, how have you reflected on current events regarding race and maybe even your upbringing, growing up? What it was like? Did you think about race? Did you not think about race? What was that kind of climate you grew up in? Yeah, I think uh, I grew up um, in a very white environment. So I grew up in the Upper Midwest. Ironically, I grew up. Uh, you could call it a suburb, I suppose, of Minneapolis St. Paul area. It was near the Literally cities. white. It was all snow. Yeah, <laughs> literally white. <laughs> literally, literally white. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I would say that I, you know, for the majority of my life up until moving away from home, I was just ignorant about racism. And and a way to describe it might be if if you were to ask a fish, um, "How's the water?" They would respond something along the lines of, "What what water?" Um, so they wouldn't necessarily be aware of the context that they're in until you remove them. And then they realize, oh, water is where I live. That's that's where I've been brought up. And so um, my wife and I moved down to Orlando in 2009 so I could attend seminary. And it wasn't until that point, I mean, this was post-college. It wasn't until that point that I really started to, to do some comparing and contrasting the context that I found myself in. Orlando's a very melting pot type city. There's a lot of different, uh, a lot of different culture, a lot of, a lot of immigrants, a lot of people from different uh, countries that we were exposed to for really in our life for the very first time. And so it wasn't until that point that we started to look back and and really understand maybe that context that we were brought up in and that me in particular, as I'm 
answering for myself and not for my wife, but um, there was certainly, now that I look back, some underlying racist uh, racist tones. I remember um, being on the bus for the first time and, and hearing racist jokes. Again, I went to a school, 100% white, white kids in elementary school. There was maybe a few kids, a uh, few black kids, a few kids um, of different ethnicities in high school, but for the most part, most part, very, very white. And um, looking back on it now, hearing hearing comments from uh, um, teachers, even people that were in authority, uh, hearing comments from people I know and love very well, um, not knowing what they were at the time shows just the ignorance in which I was brought up. I, I look back on it now and I can see clearly this context was one that was sheltered, that was kept away from not only not only the issues regarding racism in America, but also other races. So I, f I feel like that was the the context in which I was I was brought up. Um, and I'm sure I'll talk about this later. But my wife and I have been on an interesting journey since moving to Orlando. We um, we've adopted since then. We've adopted two children from Haiti. So you know, in in our family. Um, we have a son and a daughter who are black, and that has caused us to see racism in a different light. It sees we see the problems that are that are taking place in our own community and in the nation as a whole in a completely different light. There's there's um, fear. There's some personal experience now that we didn't have before, and so yeah, the current events I think have just kind of thrown us for a loop. Um, a lot of prayer, a lot of wrestling with God, a lot of um, anxiety about the future, not not really necessarily for myself and for my wife, but certainly for the church. I mean, being a leader in the church, there's there's concern there, but also for my children, for the the culture and the world that they're going to be brought up in and the experiences that they're going to have as they grow. I'm keenly aware at this point more than any other point in my life of the fact that I need to listen. I need to broaden my experience and I need to hear the voice of other people. That's powerful because now you think you look, you look back to those kids on the bus, you look back to things maybe teachers have said, and you're like, they're not just talking about them over there. They're talking about my son now. Yes. That is a very power. And again, it, it, it goes to that, that issue of proximity of like, now they're in your, someone of a different color is in your life. Now you're thinking as his father. Yes. And also as a father that's going to raise him in quote unquote white culture. Sure. You know, that's a unique thing of, uh, you know, I know a lot of African-Americans who grew up with white parents. One thing they struggle with is they fit in with other black people. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, there's all these issues that now become personal. Now become personal. And I don't say that to, to say that, oh, now I have it figured out or oh, now, right, right. now I'm enlightened and now I have this perspective, but more. But you do have a block. Oh, uh, yeah, kidding, right, right. No, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> but, but I do say that to point out my former ignorance and my current ignorance and, and the fact that I, I recognize this is a bigger problem. Racism is a bigger problem in America in our, in, and in our community and in, and in our churches than I ever knew before. Yeah, Zach, I would definitely say similar. Yeah, the funny thing about us and our upbringing is that we, we both lived as close to Minnesota as you could get without being in Minnesota. But you're on the eastern, eastern border in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. and I was on the western side of Minnesota yeah. in North Dakota. So I, I had very similar thoughts, I think. But it's really, you know, thankfully, much like you, you know, you've been in Florida for 10 plus years now, Zach. And uh, I think that for me, both current events and then also moving, 
helped to reflect on this a lot. And then, of course, these are poignant moments when you think on it. And I thought similarly, like the fish water thing you mentioned. Mm. And I don't know how much of this is just our upbringing, but it occurs to me that it seems to me like issues of race or ethnicity and diversity, they're very, they're developed. Your understanding of those things are developed very subtly and slowly over time. It's rare. At least I didn't have it. And, and this could be, you know, this could be part of the lack of self-awareness for me. Even me describing this and I'm saying, isn't that how everyone grows up? My guess is that people would say, no, are you kidding? From the time that I was three years old, my parents would have to talk to me very directly about this. And I, I think that, you know, even as, so when I reflect on it, my first instinct is to say, oh, I don't know, you just kind of slowly become aware of it. And I'm probably developing an understanding of this, but it, it just happens slowly over time. And uh, my guess is, is that that very early experience is what is so different for people who feel the tension of race constantly. And that's, you know, I think this is going to be a, that's a controversial concept for a lot of people. And I think understood well, it doesn't have to be controversial, but the idea of privilege where I grew up in a home and in a place where race was there and I understood it. But I think just as a child, because there's not a defining moment, because there's not even interactions with, I mean, the funny thing about North Dakota is it's one of the most homogeneous places you know, in America, you, we have, if you look back through the civil rights movement, there's some really hilarious moments with North Dakota coming in. They weren't in, in compliance with mandatory federal laws for the integration of services and things like that. And most of the time we were out of compliance. We were on a list often with Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. Um, and people thought it was because we, you know, we were horribly against integration. It's just, we literally had no one of color in the whole state. <laughs> we so wish we, we could, we yeah, had no we, one to integrate with. Meet, we couldn't meet quotas. And honestly, I mean, I think a lot of people would say, well, that's one of the major differences right there is that you didn't have to think about these things as a kid. But I would say that overall, and Zach, I don't know how your friends were, what sports were, that kind of stuff. I would say that what I encountered was twofold. Like my earliest rec recognition of, of racism, what I would just call flat out, something that should have been rejected um, at the time. First is generational. So I knew my grandfather's generation well. I grew up right next door to my grandparents. My grandpa was one of the most joyful, loving, godly men. He was my hero, basically, from upbringing. And when I look back, I can think of subtle moments, him and my great uncle um, together, and their understanding of the world coming out of World War II, what they had learned from their parents. Um, Any time that someone of a different race or culture, ethnicity came up, it was, there was an immediate different energy in the air. Um, nothing blatant. I didn't hear cursing, you know, there wasn't anything like that. But looking back, there was definite moments I can distinctly remember traveling on trips. And if, if someone who was, someone who's, and I mean different in the sense that they weren't just Norwegian like us or something. I mean, even subtle things at restaurants, people cooking our food, someone needing something from us. I look back and I think to myself, man, there was a very evident under the surface racism, you know, present in that in that generation. Um, and I again, it was subtle. It was slow. And I don't know what I was interpreting from that at the time. But looking back, it's just so evident. Then the second area, of course, is like when I was in high school, I was a part of sports teams and hockey is a huge thing there. And what's interesting is I look back and I, I think that there was there was racist jokes that would be common that I'd hear from people, but it was, well, the funny part about it is that it seemed at the time looking back, 
I mean, of course it was young, it was dumb, it was foolish, but it was also theoretical. I mean, the, the kids who were making these jokes or the kids who were pressing these things forward, what's odd is, is it's like they were imitating something, but they, there wasn't anyone there to, <laughs> to, right. to respond to what they thought was so funny. And I remember do thinking in the moment, okay, this is wrong. Like this, I'll yeah. never laugh at this. You know, I remember, yeah, jokes on the bus made by made by white kids, and and nobody, everybody on the bus was was a white kid. Everybody yeah. on the sports teams were white kids, and they didn't have relationships with anybody of any different race or any different background. Mm -hmm. And they were making jokes. You could tell it. It doesn't. It did not come from any sort of personal experience. It was like handed down, or or it was yeah, absolutely. It was gleaned from the culture in which they were raised, um, and not. I mean, back then. I think same. I had the same internal feelings like this is wrong and this is something we should not participate in. But, but I didn't have a fuller understanding of why and of truly how deep those perspectives on on race in America truly went until until I moved away. And I wouldn't even say a lot of people say like college is there. You know, they become woke. They they learn they learn so much about the world in college. Well. University of North Dakota was great. You both you and I went there, yeah. but at the same time, it was very similar to where we grew up. There was, I mean, it was yeah. extremely homogenous, and it really wasn't until I moved down to to Florida and to Orlando that that you know was placed before me as, hey, you, you grew up not not realizing the depth of depravity of this nation, <laughs> and and kind of being exposed to it for the first time, then and then over the past ten years. I mean, it's, it's interesting with the, I remember when the iPhone came out. So when the iPhone first came out, um, Allie was an Apple rep um, for our university, I think. So it was like just over 10 years ago, right? Allie was an Apple rep? Yeah, she was. I, I she was an I Apple was rep. kind of like, and you never gave me free stuff. No, so I got some free right stuff. Now. But she, yeah, so she, I remember when the, when the iPhone came out and it's, it was just over 10 years ago. And since that time, like, the ability to put things online, to have an online presence, to broadcast our experiences has just exponentially grown. Oh, yeah. And I think just even over the past 10 years, there's also been an awareness like these things have been going on. It's just that for the first time, we're able to broadca broadcast them in real time or record almost anything that takes place in our day and let the entire world see it. And so it's just been tragic to see how much of this is take, and this isn't new stuff. This isn't stuff that's happening for the oh, first man. time. What, this is what stuff is that's this, been uh, happening. You mentioned this sport called hockey. Yes. It's interesting. Played, it's played on ice. <laughs> interesting. It's played on ice. It's fantastic. You've never, yeah, it is if fantastic. You've, if you the first introduction to hockey, I think the best way to do it is to get ice level right on the glass seats to a professional hockey game. And that's the best way to watch it. And then try to play. But can I go back to one thing? I, I think... So on the issue of self-awareness, and I think this is what's what's at the heart of a lot of the argument, self-awareness or our understanding, what do I really think about things and how do I feel about this? It's not a pleasant experience for anyone, let alone at an area that has caused so much pain and is so difficult and really is a marker of morality in many ways. And so I look back at my upbringing and I think because it was subtle, because it was slow, because there was no, you know, extant. It wasn't, it wasn't out in the open. There was no explicit tension. Um, I think it was a, a weakness that way. And one of the things that I've experienced since I moved to the South is that 
it seems to me like we're a generation removed from all of the laws being directed in a racist manner. But I wonder if, I wonder if there's kind of a false security in that where people think, in other words, that it seems like to me, maybe, maybe some parts of the South now are able to, to grow up ignoring or not having a self-awareness of what they really think about these kind of things where that wouldn't have been possible. You know, if you're in the 1940s, and these you were probably just explicitly racist or you weren't right and but that's not the world here that we that we live in and i think that what people maybe assume is progress because it's not explosive and out in the public all the time really has just been hidden and now entire cultures and swaths of people are having to come to grips with and come get some level of self-awareness to say what what really changed if anything about this area of life. And I don't know. I mean, I know as an upbringing question, Zach, you mentioned it. I mentioned it. Uh, Brian, you also grew up in the North from Pittsburgh and right. we all moved to, moved to Florida. And I mean, I, I don't know how you guys experienced the, the change, but one of the things that I've thought about a ton since I lived here, it was drastic. The difference just in, in subtle and in very evident, um, things related to race. So did you guys, didn't notice that. I mean, I have a couple of things I would want to say right away. I don't want to step on toes. So I want to make you guys go first, but did you notice anything when you moved here, especially you went straight to Tallahassee from Pittsburgh. So I was one of like five Asian kids in my high school. Mm. And how big, what's that? How big um, was your high school? Maybe 2000 kids. Okay. So big. Yeah. I think from, but we were split. We had two, we had like a junior high school and a senior high school. So I don't know. It, I don't remember the exact sure. breakdown. But I think growing up, I grew up probably middle, upper middle class suburb. And uh, my parents came here as immigrants. They came here with very little money, made a life for themselves, kind of the American dream kind of thing. And so I didn't really have much of a racial awareness until I remember reading. It's a very distinct memory. I was reading it's either Time Magazine or Reader's Digest or something. I was in middle school. I was a very sophisticated middle schooler. <laughs> Apparently. But uh, I read this article this uh, Asian woman was writing about her experience in Chicago. She was Chicago born, born uh, native, and she expressed frustration that cab drivers would ask her, where are you from? And she would say, I'm from Chicago. And they would say, no, where are you really from? And she would wrote this whole article about how she felt like a perpetual foreigner. We're never going to be Americans. Hmm. No matter what you achieve in this life, you're always going to be an alien, the other. And I remember reading that in like seventh grade being like, what? You know, and that was a very distinct thought of like, I'm different. And then there were, it, what was interesting was I would go to school and in a lot of ways, uh, people, I would, yeah, I would face racist taunts, people slant their eyes, people, you know, saying obnoxiously racist things in front of other people. And I remember thinking, why isn't anyone else saying anything? And I remember feeling so powerless in that moment, feeling like they just think you can say whatever you want to. I would get this from not just from white kids, but from black kids or mm. it was one Middle Eastern. I mean, it was just it was just interesting. It just felt like uh, there was just an, it's OK to just say these things. People I didn't even know. Mm -hmm. And um, so what that showed me was. I understood with these current events, I understand the sense of powerlessness the sense of why won't anyone else 
you know, stick up for me, you know, not that you're, you know, like a total victim, but in the sense of like, yeah, does anyone else think this is wrong? Am I crazy? Am I oversensitive? And so that's sort of a raw nerve for me hearing about, you know, when, when African-Americans are saying we feel like nobody listens. Yeah. And, um, but when I came to the South, I think with the South, one, I do think race relations have improved just because I think newer generations are growing up in more proximity to other races. And I think with social media, in a lot of ways, there's an awareness and people are kind of going, yeah, that is kind of messed up. Agreed. There's and definite I, progress. Right, I didn't want to make it sound right. like there wasn't earlier. But I think in the South, and really, I honestly think this is everywhere in different ways. It's not an issue of, I don't think there's a lot of Southern people going, I just hate black people. I hate minorities. Um, I think it's an issue of proximity. It's like, I have no problem with any group. It could even be class. I have no problem with poor people as long as they're over there. And I think Absolutely. when that proximity comes in, if they, if they start to enter in, if they start to date one of my kids, if they start to become people in my community, if they start to sit on the same board as me, then there's a discomfort there. So I think that, no, I don't think most people are just sitting around just hating people who are different. We, we don't even have to be erasing anyone who's different. I think it's that proximity thing mm-hmm. as, as, the, uh, as, as people are coming together, as different groups are rubbing shoulders more. I think that's the issue. You're getting too close. You're kind of entering into a bub- into my bubble. I think that's a tension, I think, that, uh, that is still present. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's because that's a, that's a human condition thing. The, I mean, racism is, is the most obvious and the most odious of the human heart condition of a, of a suspicion of, or rejection of other, like a a protectionism, a selfishness, Mm -hmm. and racism just happens to be one of the, one of the most convenient and terrible forms of that. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, you're rarely going to hear, and I think that everyone is aware, and even on the surface, they would say, no, it's wrong to discount someone or right. to reject them basically because of skin color. Like they would say that out loud, but then they would have, you know, maybe less awareness of the idea that they have created a convenient life of separation mm. and a rejection of, of other. And they don't, there's zero desire whatsoever. In fact, even probably a violent disagreement if there's a crossing of those, those lines. But Zach, any, I mean, I have a couple of things. I definitely have noticed that in the South for sure. On your end of things, when you moved to I get Orlando mm-hmm. and then and then here, well, Orlando was very much so along the lines of what Brian was saying that every, everybody was rubbing shoulders. And so at first, I think, uh, I mean, I'll call it what it is. I mean, maybe there was just discomfort because this was new to to, to us. Um, and Orlando is different than Tallahassee. Um, when we moved to Tallahassee, I was pretty shocked, even even at just the geographic divide. I know that you've talked about this before, but the the geographic divide between black south and and north white and um it was it was just so obvious to us and i don't know it's not something i dwell on every day now that i'm here so i so i would understand how someone who just would grow up in this context or grow up in a southern context that was very similar wouldn't necessarily pay as much attention to it but as an outsider coming in it was just a very obvious thing why is there a line here and why is there such a divide even just geographically between between different um different ethnicities and class and class class that's a huge one yeah i would say growing up i mean our our town where the university of north dakota was where i went to high school 
there's lines everywhere. And that's what I mean. The human condition draws, draws lines. And some of them are drawn naturally because, because of class or you just can't afford it or that kind of stuff. Although there's engines behind all those things too. People, people learn how to leverage systems to create lines, but yeah, there was class lines. Like you said, we knew that there was poorer neighborhoods and upper-class neighborhoods. And there was these schools that these kind of people went to, but I agree entirely, Zach. And one of my biggest reflections in moving to the South is the unbelievably clear segregation that exists. And so I, I heard about these things when I was a kid growing up and I knew, I mean, even within churches, I knew that there were such a thing as black churches, historically black churches, white churches, but you never really felt it in the same way because there was no such thing where we grew up. But moving to Florida for a couple of years in Orlando and then to here especially, it's I've just never still to this day gotten over. I cannot believe there's a there's a literal railroad tracks and there are clear. I mean, I heard someone the other day tell me, you know, introduce and in a in a very uh, you know affirmative and positive way, but introduce someone and just say they they pastor you know they pastor a black church, and that those are just normal experiences. And so I I haven't when I say gotten over it, what's amazing to me is that. People, the ability that people have to look at those kind of things and not understand how they came about. These are not natural decisions. There was a point in history where this was a forced thing, both in the church and in, in the city, right? It's a forced thing. So segregation itself, just the evidence of it, the ongoing results. And one of the things that I would suggest to someone and I, I love a ton about where we live. And I, I think that, again, these are not, no one is blatantly harboring, no, I, some people are. Very few people that I've ever met would have some kind of blatant harboring of hate or like, oh, I'm glad it's this way or something. But I do think it seems to me like there's a pretty evident unwillingness or an underestimation of the, the impact that that kind of stuff has. In other words, cities for a hundred years were built completely designed to separate people based on race. Economic opportunities were completely separated based on race. Schooling and education completely separated based on race. And then some laws change and there's a little bit of progress, but I think that way too quickly, people want to say something like, that's all changed, it's all in the past, as though these things just immediately turn around. As oh, if those lines were just erased. Yeah, the, the lines are still, they're they're still, still there. there. And what ends up happening to me, what I hear is, and I think that if there's, a, there's an insensitivity, there's an insensitivity, and I think there's just a complete lack of awareness sometimes to say, there's going to be ongoing consequences of this kind of stuff. They don't just go away. So segregation was the first one. And if I could get a little bit more touchy here, the second thing, if I'm just honest about it, monuments, I cannot believe the approach to the Civil War in the South. And so if I gave myself two excuses when I was a kid growing up, one, North Dakota wasn't even a We've state. got to end this podcast. So uh, yeah, thank know, you for right? listening. I know. We're going, we're going to go there. And I, I hope this is the case. I mean, I, I'm in this podcast at this point and I do, I feel a responsibility to pastor. And so I'm going to press some of the buttons because I think a majority of the church that we minister in, I, I don't think what, I don't think what people in our church need to hear is all of the stuff that they've already rehearsed for their whole whole lives. Like maybe, maybe I'm just going to, I'm intentionally, I'm just saying it. I'm intentionally pushing some of the buttons that I feel 
like probably most need to be pressed for a majority of our people in the church, in our church. So I'll just talk about monuments in the civil war for a second. When I was a kid, I let myself off the hook on the racist thing. One, because there were no different people period Two, North Dakota. Wasn't even a state yet. It was a Dakota territory during the civil war. We became a state after that. So there was no history of slaveholding. And even if we had a position, then I was firmly in the camp of like, well, we were the, we were the wonderful noble union. You know, we were the North. And then moving to Orlando. So I'm in Orlando. I bring my kids, they're little kids. We bring, we bring our kids to Lake Eola downtown. And there's a statue and it's a soldier. And he looks strong and wonderful. And I got little boys. I got three little boys. So I'm pumped. I go out of my way. I'm bringing the kids over there. I want to talk to them about nobility and courage. And look at this. And I go and I realize that the name on the statue I've never heard of. I'm like, well, this is weird. Interesting. What in the world? I, I need to look this up, right? So I get my iPhone. Uh, thanks, Allie, for her spread, her part of spreading up. I get my iPhone and I search this name. And I look for it. And I realize that this guy was a general for the Confederacy in the Civil War, and then later, post-war, seemed like he was pretty vital in a couple of different places as a pretty active member of things like the KKK or like what led to that, right? And I'm standing there just with my mouth agape. Like I, I could not believe. And again, I think that right now, even in, in hearing this, my guess is there's a lot of people who say, well, you need some, you need some learning. Like, let me tell you about what the civil, and, but I just, I, I don't know if people are aware on its face, how odd that is, how absolutely odd it is. And I, I'm now with my kids who are two and three years old at the time. And I, I don't even know what to say now. I'm like, well, never mind. I don't know what to say about this. So on the subject of monuments, I mean, as someone who moved here from, you know, as an outsider, I, I'm shocked that people don't understand how that can be offensive. It's, it's odd to me. It seems so, it seems to me like the most minimum level of a way to love. So what's clear is the war ended, laws changed, but the fact that entire communities and cities and states continued to celebrate, continued to lionize, and wanted to put up statues. Now, I understand the instinct, and, and that's one of the hard things about it, but one of the difficulties, the fact that, that this, the race issue clearly was not solved. There was a bloody war that ended, I'm putting quotes here, ended it. But it was, it was very, I, it was like a, through my whole life, my whole inner life about these issues upside down to see it in person and realize, oh man, no wonder there's still tension. I mean, this is a, this is a blatant show. So there was still enough influence and enough power and enough money all the way up to this day and enough political will to keep statues of this up that, that were, that would be to, to anyone whose ancestors were enslaved. I mean, how, how do you even live in the midst of a culture that's like that, that's still so divided. Um, well, well, I think that that kind of pushes to a larger issue of one of the big buzzwords that's coming out now, but it's really been around for a while, but now it's reached prominence is the idea of systemic racism or institutionalized racism. So one, something you mentioned was it with issues of monuments or just in general thinking, well, maybe people aren't as overtly racist, but is there something 
permeating institutions in America that is perpetuating that. I, I looked up on the Cambridge Dictionary, the definition for institutionalized racism, because I think a lot of times it means 10 different things to 10 different Absolutely. people. Absolutely, yeah. And it says racism, institutionalized racism is racism that has become part of the normal behavior of people within an organization, which I think that's a good starting definition because we have clear examples of institutional racism in segregation, in Jim Crow laws. Those mm -hmm. are laws on the books. Um, those have been canceled. Those are no longer sure. there. Um, and yet this definition still says that there can still be a normal behavior of people that still has a prejudiced or racist assumptions that even though the laws are actually just, and maybe you can argue, but let's just, the laws mm -hmm. are just, maybe the organizations that enforce that law uh, may not be enforcing them in just ways. And so that leads to some of the, the discussion around, is there institutionalized racism? Again, uh, racist behavior that is part of the normal behavior of an organization within institutions such as the police. Um, and I think that that's really now as the sort of the protests are sort of crystallizing some of their actual policy ideas, it's surrounding that issue of police brutality. Is there a bias in policing issues like that? What are your uh, what are your reflections on that idea of institutional racism? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it's very important to define these things. And this is why it's not a throwaway comment to say, seek out people who are different than you and listen to them. Because my... Unless they disagree. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously. You need to listen well because my experience or my thought has been that if you say something like systemic or institutional racism, it gets people fired up because what they hear is you are an active racist and mm -hmm. always have been. Admit it. And it's very important, I think, to define this and then to listen to people what they say because that's not what's being said. That's not what's being said. So I, I would just say, and again, this is, these are just some these are some hypothetical, some theoretical questions that I would ask anyone who just out of hand, just full on says, no, it doesn't exist, period. Organizations can't be racist. Laws can't be racist, that kind of stuff. Well, one, I would say, well, of course they can be because we have a history of hundreds of years of that exact thing. Of course they can't be. But I would just say, here's some theoretical questions to people. What they're saying is, what someone is saying is, is despite, despite all the cries and all of the lament and all of the, the voicing of these things for generations, from minority groups. If they're saying these things don't exist, it's a total figment of your imagination, it's not there. Then what I would ask people is, what impact remains from hundreds of years of institutionalized racism in our country? Like, could you name anything? And I don't think, I mean, if, if someone would honestly, with a straight face, say there is no ongoing impact, everything has been fixed and everything runs completely justly, I just think they're lying. I mean, it, that's what I mean by, it seems to me living in the South now that there's an underestimation of the ongoing impact of these things. You cannot, you cannot say that for generations and generations and generations, all of the best values of life, all of the ways that families determine who they are, the things that they pass down to their children, the opportunities that they give, the education that they receive, the wealth that's accumulated and passed down, the social network of connections 
the names within towns, you know, those kinds of things, they carry on. It's what's best about societies and civilizations. And what it appears to me is that, I don't know if it's an American lie that we, we think that every single person is their own individual and we all mm. determine our own destiny, which is, is just so not true. But I would just ask someone who rejects the idea of institutional or systemic racism, well, if you don't agree with what they say it is, you tell me what do you think are the ongoing effects of hundreds of years of complete, and this is not theoretical, this is actual, on the books, this is, this is our history. What to you would you describe would be the ongoing effects of oppressing, actually oppressing an entire race of people? And it just seems so evident to me, of course, systemic racism exists. If you, if you define it like that, um, well, and I you don't know and what I, think about that. We, we personally had a lot of convers a couple conversations about this. And I think maybe we would have differences on maybe the extent, but I do think that something that I, that, that got me really interested in researching a lot about, especially police, the history of, of police and not even just certain with black communities, but poor communities is, uh, I, I think to to backtrack a little bit because I, I one of the hard things about the systemic racism conversation is it's very politically loaded. So for some person who maybe more on the right to hear systemic racism sounds like vote for liberal policies that I might agree with in principle, and then for someone to deny systemic racism on the left might sound like you deny there are any racial tensions at all. So language is very loaded. Like, mm -hmm. and I think, like you said, definitions are so important, mm -hmm. but also I think you're right. You know, we have to ref be reflective on our institutions on whether there could be a sentiment, even if it's subtle, that passes on through, even though the institutions themselves have changed legally speaking. And I think a lot of the sentiment about, um, especially with African-American lives is, is wanting to be valued as human beings, fully human beings. And I, and I think the idea would be if historically the nation has viewed African-Americans as less than human, um, then how, how long does it take for that widespread sentiment to fully go away? And if it takes a long time, is that sentiment still within institutions in sure. America. I think that is a valid question to ask. And, and something that really piqued my interest is I started hearing about the experiences of African-American leaders who are extremely conservative in their political beliefs. I, I think about uh, Senator Tim Scott. I think he's a senator. Tim Scott. I think he's in South Carolina. African-American. He uh, has strong law enforcement ties very fiscally conservative. I mean, he's got all the talking points, defends the Second Amendment. I mean, this is like he's conservative. And yet he talks about his experiences being racially profiled, being harassed mm -hmm. by the police, feeling dehumanized. Uh, another example, and I'm going to probably quote him a ton, is Dr. Anthony Bradley, who's a religious studies professor at the King's College in New York City. Conservative, Christian, he's a Presbyterian, he writes against things like the welfare state. I mean, this is, you know, he's got his conservative bona fides and he's talking about his experiences being called the N-word in academia, about being uh, harassed by the police, talking about these issues. So I think it's, it's uh, coming to this conversation 
going, this is not, it, it can be in some aspects a partisan kind of thing, but don't let the words shut down the conversation, assuming that this is, you know, totally politically loaded. I mean, this is across the board an experience that African-Americans across the political spectrum seem to be yeah. finding a reality so that, in their lives. So that's one thing that I would say we, and I think the strongest word you could use in there would be repent. That's the, the strongest word. Now, I don't, and I know that that, again, takes a lot of theological unpacking and someone might say, well, I've never personally had the experience. In other words, I've never had a black friend tell me these stories and ask me to pray with them or care for them. I've never, I've never ignored them or that kind of thing. So I'll, I'll use it collectively and I'll use it saying, I know that there's caveats, but if that, that would be one area right there because this cuts across all political lines, because we've heard this for decades from people, the fact that there has been a kind of deaf ear. And I would even say, I mean, I've had many conversations with people that I respect and I think are lucid and great and wonderful white friends who they all, they have a sarcastic, dismissive eye roll the moment that they hear these kind of things. Like they just completely believe, like they really do. They believe that black people have just been making this up. Like that, no, 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 no one's treated like that anymore. Or, and, and I think we just need to admit, eventually we've just refused to listen. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just all there's to it. Of course these things happen. And just because you didn't personally do it, doesn't discount the fact that it is happening. So someone somewhere is creating ongoing racial tension and bigotry toward people. And what we've essentially said, and when I say we, I'm going to say collective for organizations or individually and however you fit into it. We've, I think we've really just said, well, it was an isolated instance one time and you're wrong at how prevalent it is. Zach, you know, you, you, you talked a little bit about your own personal experience now that you've adopted a son who's going to grow up black in America. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your personal reactions to this talk about systemic racism and some of the issues being brought up with policing? Yeah, I think many people can can say when they when they do maybe take the time to listen, as you were saying, they can hear a story or they can hear a perspective that's not their own and and they compare it to their their own experience. And they say, that doesn't jive with my experience. So there must be something that you're exaggerating or something making up. And everybody, I say this a lot, but people have only been one person, right? You only have one set of experiences. And so I think in, in listening to other, other people, you need to broaden, we need to broaden our perspective to, to know just because someone has a, a perspective that doesn't jive with your own experience does not make it not true. Uh, it cannot be dismissed. And I think I'm realizing that for the first time now that I have a son who is of a different race, I, I'm, I'm going to be raising a black man. And that, I mean, I said before that, that thought ter terrifies me. Um, and in many ways I feel woefully inadequate because I haven't properly listened. I, I, I'm realizing like the depths of my own sin that I haven't put myself in a position to understand the perspective of another person who probably understands systemic racism better than I do. But now my son is going to is to, is going to grow up in a country that's in in terms of race is completely div divided and in ununified. And so I mean our prayer so so Allie and I pray about these things. I think what's happened most recently like I said I don't think is new. This is not these these events are not new and these are not 
um, some sort of new trend. It's just that we're we're more aware of them now than than we were before. And so I think preparing, you know, preparing our son, preparing our children as as they grow, this is the context in which we live, um, is a, a large task. One one that I I feel like I have to listen to other people in order to do that well. Yeah, I I agree totally. I think that what I've heard from a couple of people is there's been there's been some news stories that have been evident for a long time. I remember when I first memories of race was the Los Angeles riots and I think it's 92. It was the Rodney King beating. And so there's been so many of these stories going all the way back to the civil rights movement. Um, and then if you do a deep dive on this kind of stuff, it's so the idea of systemic or institutional racism continuing past Jim Crow, past the civil rights movement. I mean, you can look at, you can look at late sixties, early seventies, there are entire FBI programs that followed and tracked ex black black people and black men who had influential voices in these movements, calling them dangerous. I mean, like written down FBI notes. Uh, I mean, I, I love sports. I love basketball. So one of the things is reading Bill Russell's story from living in Boston. He's a, he's a sports hero. He ended up rejecting the entire city, leaving it and has almost refused to be acknowledged there because he, he knew, because of his, his experience with racism there. There are FBI notes on Bill Russell, a basketball player from the sixties and seventies saying that he is an arrogant Negro man who refuses to sign autographs for white children. And like they're, they're following him. Like our government is surveilling and has notes on what they consider to be a dangerous person because he is an influential black man in America. This is our generation. Like I grew up and Bill Russell is, and he's still, I mean, Bill Russell is like at the, he gives out the MVP trophy every year. And so He's going to live forever. Yeah. He just never. <laughs> he is. He's, he's aging. But these kind of experiences. So I guess, Zach, I, I'm thankful in some ways that this has become so evident ongoing that I think it's forcing it's and I hopefully it's going to force change in good ways. It's just that when we look back, I, I wonder and I think to myself. And I know you're there, too. There certainly was enough. I mean, it. It, it wasn't a hidden thing for a long right. time. Um, some of it was hidden. I mean, nobody, not a lot of people knew the FBI had notes on Bill Russell. Uh, not, not a lot of people know that there were entire parts of our surveillance organizations that followed around and killed members of black rights movements. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, you could look up and Google, I think Fred Hampton is the name uh, of a man who was sent, he was murdered by mm -hmm. our government because he was seen as a dangerous voice during civil rights movement stuff. So- and maybe maybe what I was speaking to is it, it it was so it growing up it seemed like it was so easy just to turn a blind eye to that Completely. stuff because it was not right as in your face as as the mm -hmm. the thing with George Floyd and obviously everything that's going on now you can't you can't pick up your phone you can't turn on the TV without it being mm -hmm. presented to you and so that that does feel new um, yeah. while while at the same time you're right it's not like it's not like we were blameless. Yeah. Well, no, when you said that, you said this isn't yeah. new, but we're seeing it more. Can I, one thing I think that is helpful and I would want to encourage people with this, I've tried to, and I, I understand that even right now, this is a podcast for the church and I feel very much the weight of having a kind of voice every week and trying to inform people on this. And I would say this specifically, I think one thing you just mentioned, it made me think about it. I've tried to be very careful on the specifics of any one case because what happens, and I think what's interesting with this is 
The specifics of one case, people jump on it and say, wait, 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 let's wait to hear both sides. And they act as though it's an isolated incident. And I would just caution people against that. Um, one, I am careful. And I don't try to, even on a Sunday when I'm talking about these things, I try not to name individual cases or individual moments because I know that somebody's doing background internet research and they're going to after the service come up. And in their mind, the moment I name one specific instance, they're going to be able to discount it completely and say, well, don't you know? I There's, don't do that every week. <laughs> not every week. I'm right don't. here. You don't. But I know people could do that. It's like if you're, um, in other words, these reactions, I think what people could discount and say, I cannot believe that cities are being flooded and riots going on and all this kind of stuff happening because of one bad apple, one cop killed George Floyd and you guys are overreacting. Like, I think there can be that as though it's an isolated incident. incident. And that's what I would really want to say. And the thing that I've learned and reflect on is that, no, this is the collective response of decades and decades mm -hmm. and decades of these kinds of incidents. And if you want to discount any one of them, I think about the one, you know, I read all these people or what they say is, you know what really happened with, with Ahmad in Georgia or this kind of thing, what really happened. And people somehow allow themselves a string of discounting tiny bits of evidence in any one case. And I would just say, you know, eventually, eventually what you have to say is we're not talking about the isolate. We are talking about them and they need to be honored and remembered, but we're really talking about a string and a history of things. So I don't know. These well, are I, things I'm reflecting on. I want to go a little deeper into, because one thing, like you mentioned social media and there's good and bad with that. And one of the things with social media is the sensationalism. It sensationalizes so many things. And I think on the one caution we have to have is the issue of policing and black communities. It's 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 a very complex issue. And I think a lot of times people just want to show that they're not racist and post something. Mm -hmm. And it's like that's not actually. If 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 you want reform, if you want change, you have to. There are academics and people who have been studying this for years who are who have good practical ideas about it. Again, I, I've mentioned it before, Anthony Bradley, he, he has this great, if you go on YouTube, you can find, a, he's got a great lecture on uh, grace and race, and he talks about policing. And uh, one of the things that he's been talking about in recent days is with the police issue, he's saying that it's really, he says there's two things. There's, there's a problem of race in America, and there is an issue with policing and class. And he says that those two are related, but they shouldn't be conflated. And I think that it's a very, that's the complexity of the issue. Because one of the things he mentions is that policing is very localized. There's about 12,000 precincts in America. Each, that's 12,000 cultures, 12,000 uh, relationships with their community, and 12,000 unique solutions. And so there isn't this sort of nameless uh, figure controlling everything, but it's very local. And one of the things he said is if you want, if uh, one of the ways forward, instead of just yelling and, and, and just sort of the sensationalized rhetoric, he's like, if you really want to see change, one, uh, there needs to be active efforts for police to know their communities. Uh, one of the things, interestingly, when the Irish first came here, they faced a lot of police brutality. And what changed that was they started getting a lot of native Irish guys becoming police officers and they knew their communities. 
They knew the people who, owned, who, who worked at the marketplace, who, who, who shined shoes and all this stuff. They knew these people. And that created a sense of genuine service and camaraderie between the police and the community. And that helped this oppressed minority group find more justice in the world. And now it's kind of like the cliche of an Irish cop, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that's one of the things he says, there needs to be an emphasis on, uh, on, on community relationships with law enforcement. And, uh, the other thing he mentioned was really viewing this as an issue of class as well. That, um, one of the issues is that he, he noted something, I had no idea, but he actually said that, um, mass incarceration is an issue in America. And that's a whole other can of worms, but he said that arrests for African-Americans have actually gone down in the inner cities, but they've risen among rural whites. And he says, what do those two groups have in common? And he says, it's poverty level or lower class. And he says that we've got to expand this and go, there's actually something more going on where there is just a complete othering, quote unquote, of people in the lower classes. And so that is conflated with race. And a lot of racial tension in history is upper classes trying to pit uh, immigrant minorities against blacks, poor rural whites against blacks. And so there is a whole unique cross-section of race and culture and, uh, and, and systems that makes this a very hard knot to untangle. But the hope that, he, that Anthony provides is he's like, if you want to really get involved, you have to get involved locally. You have to get involved locally because your the police culture in Tallahassee is going to be very different from Minneapolis and very different from San Diego. And so being involved, who you vote for on the ballots locally is going to have more of an impact than thinking of it on a federal level. I thought that was really tangible and helpful in a perspective I didn't hear before, where if you want that kind of change to happen, the practical way is you need like get on city boards, get on, you know, get, get involved with open forums in your local communities. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I, I, this could be a whole other right. podcast. When people ask me where I'm at politically, I, I always start with the word local. I, I think gosh, right. one of the, one of the worst tragedies, or one of the things that needs to be watched. And I think if you want to, if you had a doomsday approach to the American Republic, I think one of the things you could monitor is the nationalizing of everything. The, the great experiment that is America was the wonderful freedom and latitude we had for local governments. Now, someone might say, but that also, you know, led to very distinct racism in some states versus yeah. others. And I, I understand that. But now the solution, I think, is going to have to be local. I totally agree. I think that's a, a good thing. The, what you just said about classes is huge. And I totally, I'm totally there. But it, that's also one of the things that they can't be untangled from race as well. So the question is, why are, I think that the one of the numbers that I saw, and who knows, you know how numbers are. I don't know, they could have been you know, could have been doctored somehow because every number is suspect these days if you're a conspiracy theorist. But I want to say like on average, white, you know, white families, if on average, they have $100 worth of wealth, if you if you use it in that way, $100 worth of wealth. By comparison, the average black family in America has $5, like a 20th of the amount of accumulated wealth. So if you say it's not about race, it's just about, about class, and I'm sure Anthony Bradley says the same thing, then we just have to ask the question about like, well, okay, well then how did how did black families on average become entangled in poverty so, so often, or, or, you know, how does it, how does it disproportionately? Well, he didn't them? say there wasn't, race wasn't a factor. He was saying yeah, that yeah. you also, that, that you can't, that race and class have this 
Yes, inter, inter, intertwining, intertwining reality. Yeah. Absolutely. And so that's the kind of stuff that I would point back and I'd say, well, that's not by accident. You know, these these were designed these were designed systems that allowed in the past. And now someone would say, well, that's over with. And I'm like, well, that's why there's some after effects. The policing thing is a tough one. I would want to say, I mean, of course, the, the reason this is such a, a hard issue. And when someone says something like Black Lives Matters and then I see our neighborhood signs that say Blue Lives Matter, something right, like that. Right is because, I mean, policing is a difficult task and there are, and people know them and they're in their families, noble, wonderful, right. gracious, friendly police officers who quite honestly are doing a task that is often thankful, thankless. Lives are always at risk. It's dangerous. Mm -hmm. They're not paid ex especially well. And so I understand completely why it can be so hard. And that when you just said that, there's, it, if you try to paint with a broad brush there. I mean, it's going to be offensive because it, it's just not the case for every single police officer at all. I mean, and not even close. So I've probably been more hesitant and I just need to learn a little bit more. I don't want to, again, on the specifics of the case, that I, it's hard for me to speak to that, except to say the population of people who are most affected, if there is, if there is a tendency toward too much violence in policing, if we're not de-escalating the way that we should, if there are policies that cities have that policing affects class or impoverished people more often. I think we just have to acknowledge that black communities are gonna be more impacted by those and they're going to have a lot more to say about it because they are disproportionately impacted both in inner cities by police tactics and because of the number of families that are impoverished. So I understand why policing becomes the center of these, of these debates and these protests. Um, but I agree with you, I, I wanna be careful because it's a it's a complex issue, and a lot of people who serve do so because they're they're noble men and women well, who want to help. There are there are two. I just want to briefly reference two historical events that show how complex <laughs> this is. But I think we shouldn't be afraid because it's complicated. I don't. You know, I think that's sometimes it's too complicated. To, mm -hmm. No, no, no. We have to wade into these deep waters. You know, and uh, because I think there are, in my experience, the, there are two polarizing views. There's sort of one view that says, well, all of these issues facing the black community are because of issues in culture, 70% born into single, you know, 70% of African-Americans mm -hmm. are born into single family homes, single mom, welfare state, all these things. And, and honestly, I mean, like, I think Barack Obama mentioned that where he, he lamented the fatherlessness in the African-American community. Um, I think one of the presidents of the NCAA, oh, I always do that. NAACP. <laughs> the NAACP mentioned uh, that that uh, he thought that fatherlessness was actually a bigger issue than racism. Although he said racism is a huge issue, so make sure people hear that it's not this is the issue, not this. Yeah. But those are connected. Those are connected, yeah, right? Well. And uh, and so so that's one side. But then there's the other side. We're going. What? Well, yeah, but but this isn't. Isn't it strange how this is happening to one community? And let's look at the history. Why is it happening? And I think it's both sides are right, but they don't realize that the two things can be true at the same time. Mm. And mm -hmm. I, I want to point at uh, Thomas Sowell. He's a uh, economics professor at Stanford. He used to be. He's an old guy now, but probably he's an African-American, probably one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century, honestly. And one of the things he points out is in the 1940s, uh, actually, at the, at, the, at the beginning of the 19th century, or the 20th century, I always get that mixed up, there was a school in Washington, D.C. called the Dunbar School. 
It was a public school. It was all black because of segregation. And what was fascinating about this school is because of the culture of the families and because they were families were more intact, despite overwhelming odds, this school formed in 1899 uh, under segregation flourished above all odds. African-American kids were beating the national average of, I, of IQ and beating the other white high schools in terms of graduation rates and test scores. So you have this amazing testament to the resilience of the black community under the highest forms of oppression. So there is the potential of like, yeah, a culture change can massively impact things. But there's another event. Uh, this is in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. This is, I, I didn't know about this, and this was fascinating. There was this small community of affluent African-Americans, college-educated, entrepreneurial. It was called Black Wall Street. It was in the Greenwood District of uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was very prosperous. And a lot of these were descendants of freed slaves. They, had, they were people who just wanted to make a life for themselves. High achieving culture, strong family units, everything was there. And then one day, a police officer accused a black shoeshiner of saying something inappropriate to a white woman or assaulting her. It was a totally bogus claim. And then a group of white men, a mob, massacred 300 people in that community. That community was called Black Wall Street. So here you have an African-American community going, we're not going to be victims. We're going to try to uh, build something for ourselves. And they're succeeding. And what happens? One act of racism comes in and sets them back. That's going to affect things too. Mm -hmm. And so it's very complicated. It's a very destructive thing. And you can't say that racism hasn't had a massive effect on the African-American community. I mean, there's historic evidence there. And so... But I think that that kind of wide angle lens of history shows that it can be both. There can be genuine issues in African-American communities in this city, which this is a statistic I didn't know about. Forty percent of African-Americans live in the suburbs. Only a fifth live in inner cities, hmm. which kind of shows maybe the widespread ignorance of thinking that all black people live in the ghetto or something like that. That's yeah. not true at all. Well, that's a yeah. Right. That's an. It's a misunderstanding that can be perpetuated by narrative. And right. I don't right. want to say white narrative, but yeah. Right. Of, and that's I, a stereotype that we have. And I know I went, you know, I kind of went off on a, but, but I, all I'm trying to highlight is there's a very complex history that we should dig into that shows it's, it's both. And it's like, there is, there are things that people within a community, any community, any minority community can be self-critical and go, Hey, we can overcome we can, we can start to get local and think through ways that we can overcome. But then there's also a responsibility of people outside of that community to go, yeah, but there have been historic yeah. racist actions against communities who are trying to make it. And I think scripture gives categories for both these things. And I agree. I think we have a hard time holding, holding multiple true things in the same conversation. Right. It is true, and it can be true, that there has been ongoing oppression, sin, racism, things that need to be fixed. At the same time, I think the scripture calls people to say, you cannot let the sin of others cause right. you to sin. Right. And so if your temptation in the midst of that is, is revenge, if your temptation in the midst of that is to give up, 
hope, if your temptation in the midst of that is to lash out in anger or violence. I mean, so you can say both of those things and give grace on both sides. You could say to someone who doesn't know how to change things for the better and doesn't know how to admit or say, we need to get better. You can give grace to them and say like, okay, well, let's just keep trying. And I understand. And I think we also need to give grace to communities who are exhausted by right. stories of like this Tulsa thing. You know, we were pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps right. and Oh, there's an amazing, I think it was um, MLK Jr. talked about, uh, he said, it's not an act of love. It's a, it's a curse to say to a bootless man to pull himself up by his bootstraps. It's just a, it's a great speech if you've not heard it. But if we're going to say to communities who are exhausted and tired by this sort of stuff, we can't hold them to an ongoing standard that says, a graceless standard that says, you need to stop playing the victim. You need to stop getting angry. You need to stop being violent. I mean, of course that is true. It is true that it's possible. You don't want to lose your soul because of the sin of others. But I think we should give grace on both sides. That, that's a good segue into thinking, how do Christians, how do we approach this? How do we understand, especially considering the history of racism in churches? I mean, I think humanizing is something that we have theology for with the image of God, actually viewing people as somebody that not only we don't have animosity towards, but we genuinely recognize as a human being that we want to have proximity to. I remember hearing um, uh, this, this story of this one woman, she's African-American. She talked about, uh, she mentioned the one time she felt human, fully human, uh, after growing up around mostly white people was when she was asked by a professor uh, and brought in to talk to a classroom. And she was brought in as an expert not primarily as the black representative to talk about black issues, mm -hmm. not primarily as a black woman or anything like that, but simply as an expert. And she said that that was very powerful, powerful for her because she felt like she was a, a human being first who had something unique to offer rather than just a representative of a group, which can happen. One of the dangers is you don't want to turn African-Americans into an abstract cause to fight for. Oh, that's that's, the, that's yeah, dehumanizing, right. right? Just as you don't want to turn them into the enemy or the problem. All of that is othering and treating them as if they're not human yeah. beings. That's right? why we need to be careful about the way we go about these things. Yeah, the the approach of tokenism or the idea this is a project or, you know, that that's not only just in in race relations, but I think the history of missions shows that. You know, don't, oftentimes. do not pander I'm to, as, a, as a person of color, as a POC, <laughs> don't pander to minorities. We can smell it a mile away. Yeah, and it's a absolutely. weird way of using minorities to make someone feel better. Yeah. It, it, I'd rather uh, you disagree than pander. I would also say, you know, it's interesting when you mentioned proximity earlier. I think sometimes there can be these immediate and not very thoughtful approaches to this. So there's been history of places where in poor neighborhoods, for instance, with a wonderful, beautiful heart, hordes of white people say, we're just going to move in there and make it better. And what and happens raise is the property gentrif yep. gentrification yep. happens. Yep. And now historically mm -hmm. black communities that had a culture and a, and a life there end up getting kicked, kicked out. And, you know, and then, and then it's even worse in some cases because there, these can be held up as a model of success for white communities and right. they, they feel great about it, but then did it really help anyone or did now you just create a why? So yeah. these, these are thoughtful, these, you have to be thoughtful. And then that can be discouraging because I know that if I even say that out loud, it really is done with a good heart. And it turns out, I mean, it's worth trying. I, I don't, I don't want to say don't try things. Of course it's worth 
worth trying. And it can be discouraging to people who, who just who actually want right. to change things. And they realize, well, I tried this and it didn't work. And I tried that and it didn't work. And, you know, when you said earlier, and you know, don't, um, don't patronize or don't uh, pander to them. Mm-hmm. And so the difference between inviting a person of, you know, color, I don't know he said that, but if, inviting them, inviting to your thing because you care versus I'm just pandering. I mean, no one knows the exact lines here. It can be very difficult and discouraging. But I, I just think be careful about the way we try to solve these issues. Be thoughtful. And, you know, that's a part of it. Yeah. Well, if, oh. if we have like some sort of solution to cultural problems where white, especially racism problems where, where white people are the hero, like we've got it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> like we right. certainly need, we certainly need to, to reframe that and going kind of back to what you're saying about viewing, not, not only people of different race, but really just everyone as, as human beings created in the image of God. I mean, that's gotta be where it starts. I think, um, I mean, I love nature, right. But, but a, a love of God ought to drive us to a love of other people. And the reason I right. say I love nature is because some people can say, well, I experience the glory of God and the beauty of God. And, you know, I experience him closest when I'm one with nature, when I go out and experience his creation. But the truth is God created a pinnacle of creation in human beings to, to reflect him in, in his glory more than anything else that he creates. And if we as Christians do not see to love another human being brings us closer to a knowledge of God and an understanding of God and what he's like as his image bears, then, then we're missing something. If we prioritize other aspects of creation or other aspects of ministry or other aspects of, of um, Christianity that that we think is more important than simply loving another human being. We've got it wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Simply this, like, yes, yeah, simply loving, simply the second, you know, love God, love neighbor. I mean, that's where all mm-hmm. the law hangs on. And do, I, just, do justice, love kindness. Right. Walk humbly through I, God. Yeah. I remember I, I've had, I've heard African-Americans in the current environment. So one thing that they're, that I've heard them talk about is, you know, it's that they were frustrated that, they're like, oh, I appreciate my white friends posting things about this, but none of them texted me. And now they want to talk to me. And I've been their friend for years. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, or, or now now they want to include me in social groups. And I go, that's a larger problem of, I don't know if we know how to love people. If we really no. look, again, like you were saying, local. Like, what's your political beliefs? Local. It's like, how do you do this? Local. Who's in your local church? Who do you? Who are your neighbors? Like, Forget yeah. about the abstract out there. If we can't love tangibly with real people, then it then it becomes that sort of cliche mission trip, take a picture with a little African kid yeah. and post it. You know, it's hard work though. It's gonna require something's gonna be expected of us. And there's tons of misunderstanding know? when when you really attempt it too. Yeah, I think we get uncomfortable with that thought and that's part of what keeps us away from actually building bridges and actually establishing relationship with people of different backgrounds and of different races. Right. It's because we're afraid of the misunderstanding. Right. And we're afraid we're going to offend or we're afraid we're afraid we're going to say the wrong thing. And I I feel that a lot, but but that cannot stop our love our love for God and our love for other people has to be strong enough to overcome those fears. And it has to be the environment. It one of the tough things is if now you're like, I don't have a lot of black friends. It's like the worst thing to do is to try to start a friendship by going, hey, can we just like, can I just emotionally overload you by talking Absolutely. about this? It's like, man, you know, that happens over having barbecues together, going to church together, seeing each other multiple times, having that proximity that creates an actual platform 
so that you can have these conversations and be okay with the misunderstanding because they're built on a genuine relationship. It's not, again, a project relationship or a, I'm just trying to be noble and understand you feel heard. And, and no, it's like you, you, these, this should, this is not raw. This is basic Christianity. This isn't like another level of Christianity. This is like looking at somebody else, image bearer of God and loving them in tangible ways and genuinely seeking their best and viewing them as people created by God. And that's, that's yeah. the simplest thing, but the hardest thing. And I think that over the course of time, hopefully we could have, I think there's long conversations about, well, what are some options? What are some right. ways that we do this? And I, I think that there's some things I would caution people against. The reality is fixing, fixing the problem. That's a, you know, kind of a quote, fixing the problem. Right. Long history is not going to be as easy as just, well, now we decided. I mean, it turns out that we're trying to get better at this. We're also going to be impacted by how long it's been that we've been bad at this. So don't, you don't just, you don't just give black people here. Here's a vision. We now have a cultureless, you know, perfectly, um, perfectly mixed culture and diverse churches. Right. Everyone now rearrange. Right. We're just going to control go. it next week. Go. Because that's just not, it's just not going to happen. It's not realistic. So I think we could have talks about that later, but from a Christian perspective, I would just say a couple of things. If you're in a church and you say, I don't want to talk about race issues because it's political. And that's not what we're about. We're about the gospel. It's not just political. Churches were at the forefront for hundreds of years of the segregation and not only participated in it, but in many times led it. There were moral, there was moral underpinnings, ethical teachings from scripture, misuse of scripture in order to justify these things. So I had the opening to the Good Samaritan parable. The man comes to Jesus and it says, in seeking to justify himself, he says, who is my neighbor? And churches can't say that's just a political issue because for hundreds of years, churches invited scores of folks into their churches seeking they were seeking to justify themselves and the churches gave them what they wanted they taught in a way that allowed this to be perpetuated the fact that there were even black churches at all and i think you mentioned i don't know if you mentioned earlier but ryan reeves is a professor you said you'd watch a video um, that would be a good one on the history of black churches right so there's no such thing as this is just a political issue but we're a church uh that I'm sorry, that ship has sailed a long time ago. So churches need to consider it. The other thing is, is that no matter what argument you make against these things, I think the Bible, let's imagine you're in a room and someone comes to you and says, here's the concerns. Black communities are suffering. They're lamenting. They're angry. There's been violence. There's been loss of life. There's concerns. They're coming. And you're in that room and you just say, I don't want to deal with this. And you try to find a door of avoidance or escape. I really think that, this, that the Bible has something to say about every single possible door of avoidance uh, just by simple image of God. Uh, who is my neighbor? Love versus hate. What does mercy look like? What does compassion? It doesn't even, it doesn't matter what you think is the real issue. I, you know, I'm just going to get to the bottom of this, the real issue. No matter what it is, I think that if you are sincerely saying, I want to follow the path of Jesus, you don't really have a door of avoidance that's right. not open to you. So I, you, could say to, you could say to anyone who is trying to escape the issue, well, what about what the scripture says about this? And you have to really, I would encourage, I mean, everybody has to think Christianly about this. Because to be honest, I mean, even movements that are calling out for justice that are secularly based, you've got to understand that you might, be like, I agree with fighting for justice, but some of these, uh, you have to understand that people are pushing 
from a secular perspective in a lot of these issues who would disagree with us on abortion, who would view, you know, they might, we might say, yeah, we agree with you on justice for African-Americans and all that stuff. And they would go, well, what do you think about reproductive rights? And we're going to have to be like, hey, I think that's sinful. I think that's killing, right? I don't think there's such thing as reproductive rights. I think that's abortion. And you're going to, there's going to be pressure there and we're going to have to stand as Christians in that. So it's like, be careful how much we identify with any movement, but also on the other side, we don't want to oversimplify and just go, let's not be political. Let's just preach the gospel because there's this, there's this amazing, not amazing, it's horrible, but it's stunning. It's this picture of, it's a clan meeting, all these guys in robes and they're in front of a sign that says Jesus saves and they're at a Christian rally. So yeah. I, to just say you just need to preach the gospel, I mean, these are people who can articulate the gospel, who know theology, who are five-point Calvinists, and they're racist. So, yeah. so they're, they're, it's not as simple as that either. You have to talk about specific points of sin mm. and let the gospel permeate everything. So I mm-hmm. think on whatever side you fall on in this political mess, we have to recognize that it's that there are secular things that we have to avoid, even though we agree with some points that they're making, but we have to stand strong against those. But also we have to recognize the history of racism in the church. That's not as simple as like, just believe in Jesus and then all this other stuff will work itself mm-hmm. out. Well, no, because a lot of Christians had slaves. A lot of Christians still wanted yeah. to segregate. So it's not as cut and dry as that. And we have to be yeah. willing to stand against evil no matter what it is. I think we can say out loud, now is not a good moment culturally to have these kind of conversations because all of the mechanisms of rhetoric are forcing these things away. I mean, it, what? Yeah, it's crazy. But when you said you have to be careful to not identify, I'm like, well, you shouldn't have to be careful because everyone realizes that by agreeing with one sentiment doesn't mean, well, now I'm a 100% agree with everything they ever. Right. You know, but how social we, media oh, we have blows caveat, that up. We right. have to caveat everything. Right. right. If, you know, and, and that's just, obnoxious and I don't want to be so afraid of that. So, and you see it all the time with something as simple as black lives matter. The fact that there's become so much debate around a phrase that is so patently obvious as a good thing. And it's because we're, we live in a world that is overcharged. Everyone says, well, what about if I say, I like Coke, you hate Pepsi. You hate, you know, or you know what the Coke organization did in 1902 and in some other country. I'm it's like, no, I just, I like this, this thing. And the fact that we hesitate to be able to agree with or say, oh my goodness, of course, Black Lives Matter. This, this, is a, this is a godly sentiment, right? This is something that can be proclaimed because, well, you know that there's an organization of Black Lives Matter in some place that really props up Planned Parenthood and blah, blah, blah. And, and I could just say to them, well, no, I didn't know that. And two, even knowing that, I can still say to you, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, that doesn't change it the doesn't truth change of that the statement. the truth of the statement. <laughs> and I also just think on that specifically, can I just request to people that if you insist on correcting people who say Black Lives Matter and say All Lives Matter, something like that, that has got to be one of the most unloving things. It, it shows to me I know that people who do that are not really so ignorant as to believe that what the person is saying is that other lives don't matter, that they're, they're showing an unwillingness, a complete, a complete refusal to hear the other person. It's, it's the, the all lives matter people are are people who are putting both fingers in their ears and just shouting nothingness at the wind. Like it's, 
because they don't, they know that they're not saying that. It would be like if uh, I told you this the other day, Brian, we were talking about it. I have nephews uh, that uh, have a respiratory illness. It's one that's, you know, pretty well known. And I've done, my brother and his wife have done a bunch of fundraising for the organization. I've gone to different rallies. It's like if I invite people to come to a, a walk for this particular thing, and I'm saying on a social media thing, or I say, you know, find a cure for X, Y, Z. And how would it sound if a bunch of people just jumped in and they're just like, well, what about these other diseases? All diseases matter. What do you mean you're raising money for that? I'm like, what are you talking about? No one would be confused about my insistence to say, this is affecting a community of people that I love that are human beings made in the image of God. And I want to help alleviate the pain. But on this issue, somehow this is people act as though they're completely oblivious to it. And I'm just, I just want to say to them, stop. It's basic compassion. It's just, that's what right. I mean. It's a Bible category. It's just compassion. Stop. I, I think that whatever we do, we should do not because, because I think there is a tendency, I think, and this is just anecdotal personal, my observation that especially for younger evangelicals, we feel so beaten up on like, well, we're against gay marriage and we're pro-life. And so like culturally everyone's, and finally we have an issue that we can feel like our non-Christian friends can be like, all right, I'm, I'm down with that. Sure. I don't think that means that you shouldn't say sentiments like black lives matter. You should affirm what's true. I just think that we want to not do things because we finally can look like non-fundy Christians and look good. We want to do things because it's righteous. And I think there will sure. be a point where it's like, yeah, some of your non-Christian friends who really appreciate your call for racial justice and stuff are also going to, you're going to hit a snag mm -hmm. in some of those conversations yeah. because you're going to reject other things. And the motive for all of this should not be a desire to be approved by anyone, but a desire to genuinely go, I want to represent Jesus Christ in this world, represent what he would represent no matter what, because it's simply right, because it's good. Yeah, that's so. that, like the fear, the fear of misunderstanding or the fear of being labeled something that's the fear that we need to overcome in the name of love for the other person. It should not prevent us from saying things, like you said, that are completely obvious. Black lives matter. They do. <laughs> and so we should not be afraid to say that because of what people might think on the outside. The Scripture presents um, a unified, like Scripture's consistent, right? Like everything that the gospel teaches us, everything that God says is consistent. It's Christians who are, who are inconsistent. And so we need to work as best as we can to understand scripture, to understand the Lord, to follow the pathway of Jesus Christ. And we need to say things, not necessarily being so concerned with the perception outside, as long as we know that it is consistent with what Jesus teaches. Right. No matter who we're talking to. I mean, that's, that, we can expand and I think you guys, I think Zach, you're saying it's expanding beyond just what you think. Do you view, uh, you know, black people as people made in the image of God, but just do you view people as people made in the image of God? It's everything pulling out and going like, no matter what, we've, we stand for righteousness, no matter what political party, no matter what issue is coming in. It's like, mm -hmm. we do this because we're called to it. And if we're going to be misunderstood or labeled a different way, so be it. This is... You know, we don't live for the approval of other people. But uh, anyway, we've, we've already gone way over. A long time. But, you know, it's an important discussion. And I think, you know, this is, again, this is not exhaustive by any means. Again, we have a modest hope that this can at least get the conversation started. We don't, not only any of us pretend to be experts on this. We're all reflecting and, and learning. 
But I think we shouldn't skip over this conversation. We shouldn't just let this be a passing fad. This is a very vital time of self-reflection that we can, we can steward well. Um, I just want to wrap up real quick with just uh, see, here are some resources I've found helpful. And if you guys have any, you can chime in. But I mentioned this, uh, Dr. Anthony Bradley, great Christian writer, writes a lot of good. He's been writing about this for years, which is why I really like his ideas, because this is not just a, a new thing for him. Uh, he's written a book called Black and Tired. It's a series of essays of his reflections on race and the church and society. Really, really good stuff. If you're interested in issues of uh, African-Americans and poverty and education, uh, I would read, uh, there's a book called Black Rednecks, White Liberals by Thomas Sowell. He's an economist. And again, that Ryan Reeves video, if you're interested in the history of the black church, especially through civil rights, Ryan Reeves, Dr. Ryan Reeves, he's a church historian. He has a great video on YouTube explaining all of that. It's very educational. Do you guys have anything to add to that? Or What I would say is rather than directing people to uh, Twitter accounts or articles, because there's so many hot takes, there's so many things that are coming out immediately, you know, right. on these, these, these events that are happening. I would say, I mean, best resources is to find someone who is different than you, build a relationship with them, talk to them. Right. As we've said before, listen to them. And this kind of fits in what we were talking about. Real change, I think, happens at a local level. It happens at a right. personal level. Uh, there can't be reconciliation when we're just throwing words out into the stratosphere. Um, but there can be when you're engaging in real relationship with other people that are different and have different perspectives and backgrounds. So um, best resource, you know, would be real human beings um, oh, yeah, that's that you huge. can learn from. I mean, don't and don't use like the social media to avoid the hard work of actually yeah, yeah. making it's a, a whole lot easier to just right. follow different people on Twitter. Right. And, and not that you shouldn't do those things, but right. but it should be secondary to real relationship. Well said. Yeah, I think I would just summarize that. I don't want you don't want to over over resource people either. I mean, right. I think that if you really want to know and look, if you ask people, you can find you can find good things to read. I would just say I I really hope and I would encourage people to take the time to pray through these issues, to try to get as much awareness as possible, and then give grace to one another. Um, so within our church, you know, we, we can say particular things, say, here's a perspective on it, but be patient with people as they come along these things. Be patient and bold, I think, is the, is the, the two combo thing there. Uh, if patience means putting up with and never getting to the issues, don't do that. But if boldness means ignoring ignoring or dehumanizing the person you disagree with don't do that but a, a godly gracious you know spirit wrought patience and boldness is what i'm i'm praying that we could have quick to listen slow to speak right and brotherly love tenderheartedness bearing with one another christianity 101 right well that is it for this uh, episode thank you for listening be sure to subscribe and uh, let people know about this conversation if this is helpful for you. Again, we're going to have resources in the show notes as well. Thank you guys for listening.